Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you here tonight. We're glad that you could be with us here at Grace Church for Wednesday night Bible study. For all of you that are joining us online, we're glad that you could be with us as well. I want to make just a few announcements this evening. Uh, we want to remind you that Wednesday school starts tonight uh, for all of our children ages 3 to 10. So if you're wondering where all the youngins are, that's where they are. And if you're a youngin and you're still in here, then you have somewhere else to be. Um, all of our men, we want to remind you about men's prayer in the A Center this coming Saturday at 9 a.m. Always a great time. And if your schedule allows, we would love to have you join us this coming Saturday for men's prayer. On Wednesday, September 30th, Brother Carl Sledge, who's the missionary to Germany, will be with us. So keep that in mind. Always enjoy having our missionaries with us. And then also, we want to remind you once again, Saturday, October 17th, family night outside from 4 to 7. And we ask that you please register online just so we have a head count and who's coming. There's no, no fee, no charge, but we would like to know how many to expect. So if you are going to be here, please register. And we encourage you to bring somebody with you, if at all possible, to come out and enjoy the good time. And as always, you can stay up to date with everything going on here at the Grace Church campus through the website or through our church app. Amen. Now, I know that um, tonight I'm, uh, there, are, there are people here who live very clean, and I'm not, being, uh, I'm not being facetious. I'm not being patronizing. There are people here tonight you live very clean lives. You, you think good thoughts, and you rarely think bad thoughts. And you say good words, and you rarely say bad words. And I admire you. The world needs people like you to make up for people like me. Because sometimes, y'all, I just, I struggle. And um, sometimes I don't feel very lovable. Oh, things just got real here on a Wednesday night before the preaching even starts. But sometimes I don't feel very loved. I can remember... In middle school, and middle school's terrible. I don't know what your middle school experience was like, but middle school's awful. Middle schoolers are kind of awful. Um, as someone that spent 25 years in education, I feel like I have the authority to say that. But middle school's rough, and I can remember in seventh grade, there was something wrong with my body that year. And in PE, we would play volleyball or this other thing called bounce ball. And I couldn't make my body do the things that I knew it needed to do in order to, to hit the ball over the net. And it really looked like a spastic chicken most days. And as a result, it was just that year. Something happened after seventh grade year. I don't know. My, my body finally made all the necessary neural connections, and it worked after that. But um, I always got picked last. I don't know if you've ever had that experience to be picked last. But if you haven't, I wish it would happen to you at least once because it's, uh, it's not fun to be picked last. Every person wants three things more than anything else. They want to be loved, they want to be accepted, and they want to be chosen. And these longings are there, even people who aren't willing to admit it. But there's good news. You don't have to look anymore for love or for acceptance because you're already chosen. You're already loved and you're already accepted by Jesus. Everyone wants to be chosen from your childhood days 
on the middle school volleyball court, in the workplace, in love. You want to be chosen. Being chosen is key to establishing self-worth. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he, this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure to do it. God created the entire universe because he wanted a family. The whole reason the universe exists is because God wanted children to love. So according to the verse that I just read from Ephesians, when did God choose you? He chose you before the world was made. Before God chose to create the universe, he had already chosen you and me. In fact, that's why he decided to make the universe in the first place. He wanted a place where you could live. Before God chose any tree, he chose you. Before God chose any star, he chose you. Before God chose any ocean, he chose you. Before God chose every rock that exists, he chose you. I hope this is sinking in tonight because that's an amazing thought that even before he chose to create the sun and the moon and the galaxies, God chose you to love you and to know you. And that is the foundation of your identity. That is the foundation of who you are. Nobody wants to be chosen last. I can tell you it stinks. But you never, ever will be last in God's thoughts. You have always been first on his mind. He chose you. He chooses you. He loves you and he accepts you. And you can rest in those truths tonight. Amen. How about that? Why don't we just clap our hands under the Lord? Thank you for choosing me, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for making it possible for me to have that type of identity. Amen. God bless you this evening as Brother Ben comes. Praise the Lord. appreciate the confirmation that Brother Jason just gave for what I'm going to teach tonight. That's so good. I feel like I can just go sit down. He's already done the job. Praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and give you my text for tonight. It's going to be found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. It says, uh, verse 13 says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, 
and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Few there be that find it. Join me together in prayer tonight. Lord, we love and appreciate you, Lord Jesus. We know that you're here, dear God. We know that you have intent and purpose for each person that is here. And you, we know, Lord, that you have an, a reason, Lord, for our existence. And we pray, Lord God, that you anoint your word, anoint our minds, dear God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to conform to your will and be obedient to our faith in the name of Jesus. Everybody say amen. Do you love truth? Do you love truth? I'm not going to yell at you tonight if I can help it. I know I say that every single time. Brian, but I just can't help it. But do you love truth? Is it valuable to you? Is it something that is more precious to you than the things that you have, other things that you have in your life? The reason I ask that is because there needs, there really needs to be within us in this day and age a love, an excitement, an exuberant feeling for the foundational things of our faith, for the very basic things. And I know that whenever we hear we have a preacher that come up behind the pulpit, that we're looking for something very unique and unconventional and very exciting and to get us moving. But can we still feel that way for the foundational things of our faith, for the very basic things, the things that we build on? Do we still, do we still come alive when we hear about those things? foundational things. We do need to work, I believe, toward a deep understanding of the Word of God to go into the more esoteric things of, of the Word. But, but that biblical knowledge, it must be tethered to or built upon a foundation of truth, something that is unwavering in a world that loves to vacillate between opinions. The Word of God, ladies and gentlemen, does not change ever. Let me say that again. The Word that you have in your hands or you have at home by your nightstand or that you read every day by the mark, that Word is settled. It's not going to change. It's going to exist long after we're gone from this world. And we need to love what it says. We need to love that foundation of truth, a truth that we are more than, more than vaguely aware of. We need to be fluent in the truth of God's Word, not just conversing in it, not just be, not able to just uh, quote a few scriptures and, and, and to know Acts 2.38, and, and that's all we we. We retain, we have to be more than just conversing in the Word of God and the truth contained in that Word. We need to be fluent in it, settled. It needs to be inscribed on our hearts and valued. We must be articulate and grounded in that truth, especially in the times and the culture in which we live. And why do I say that? Because the Christian ethic and the doctrines of of Christ are under assault every single day. And they are, and the, and the assaults that we face and, and, and deal with are very subtle, and they are capable, and if you're not careful, your mind can slip. 
So we need to be more than just vaguely aware. We need to be articulate and grounded in the truth. So I, with that being said, I'm very humbled by the message that I, I have for you tonight. And it's very, very simple. I, I told pastor this evening, it's one of the most simple messages that I've ever preached. And I, I'm extremely humbled by being able to bring it to you. It's at the core, really, of the purpose of anyone who is called to be behind a pulpit. I was able to really uh, to teach an abridged version of this that at our weekly Bible study to people that did not really know God, and I was humbled by that experience as well. To fully appreciate what I have to say tonight, you need to remember something that I know you know. You need to remember the concept of grace. You need to remember the concept of, of grace, the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God. We know that grace is necessary due to the tension that exists between man's sinfulness and the holiness of God. We understand that there's a tension between those two things. They're not compatible in any way, no matter what this world tells you. There is no amiable coexistence between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. This tension required an answer for a reason. This tension required an answer because of the love of God. If the love of God did not exist, the tension wouldn't matter. Think about that. If the love of God did not exist, the grace of God would not be necessary. He, as Brother Jason says, chose you. He loves you. No matter what this world says, no matter what the value, valuations and value systems of this world are, God loves you. And because of that, and because of the tension between the sinfulness of man and, and the holiness of God, there required something, and that's where grace came into being. His desire to have relationship with humanity and, and to give us life, everlasting life. That answer which is grace, it provides the atmosphere for the, for the favor of God. The atmosphere, the environment for the favor of God. So I'd like to speak to you tonight about a specific expression of that favor. I want to speak to you tonight a little bit about the width of the way, the dimensions of the way. Now, I'm very honest to pe uh, with people when I tell them that I am no craftsman, and all of my kids and my wife could certainly back me up on that. I'm not a craftsman with wood, and I know there, there are some people here that are very capable with that, and I admire you, but I am no, I, I'm no craftsman. The fact that I, I know how to build something doesn't make me a carpenter. doesn't make me a carpenter. I have some rudimentary skills and a willingness to make mistakes. That's what I have. That's all. With that being said, I do know a little bit about how things are, are supposed to be constructed. I don't know how to do it, but I know how it's supposed to be done. I can point to you and tell you you're doing it wrong. Don't ask me how to do it. But that just doesn't look right. I know these things 
through observing real carpenters and, and a tremendous amount of personal error and mistakes. One of the most important things that I have learned is this. If something is important, I want you to remember this tonight and think about it for the rest of this message. If something is important, the measurements for that thing are precise. The more important it is, the more precise the measurements. Whenever I was a, a, young, a young man, uh, growing up, my, my dad was a contractor. He built piers and bulkheads on False River. And I learned that the acceptable margin of error with dad in, in, in those uh, piers over hundreds of feet was about an eighth or a quarter of an inch. That's what he would accept. That was the margin of error. Later in my life, I worked in uh, catalytic reactors and petrochemical plants, and I learned that the acceptable accuracy there was measured in thousandths of an inch. That was far more important. Those things were far more delicate than a pier or a bulkhead. They could explode and kill you. So those, those measurements had to be very precise. So as the importance of a thing increased, the measurements associated with that thing were calculated carefully and conveyed with rigorous precision. You had to know the exact measurements. It was that important. Measurements mean something, ladies and gentlemen, beyond the dimensions that they articulate. Their precision imparts a sense of, the, of how important the thing is that's being measured. Does that make sense? Let's bring that to the Word of God. When you begin to read through the Bible, you will see throughout its pages that God speaks frequently in, in specifics. God can be very specific in His Word. The language used in the Word of God is very, very intentional. Whenever you read the Word of God, you, you can get the obvious meaning. But when you read that scripture again, you're going to learn something new. There's the obvious meaning, and then there's more obscure meaning. So you have to dig. That's why you're encouraged to study the Word of God. Don't just settle on the obvious meaning. Dig a little deeper. You're going to learn something new. The specificity in God's conversations and, and instructions to mankind were frequently revealed in dimensional measurements, and I love that. Man was often told to build exactly as God instructed. And through this, we learn an important aspect of the Lord's character, a couple of them, actually. The Lord is specific, and He is consistent. He does not emulate the vacillating directives and designs of man, but is consistent to his own internal specific design. God does not change because you want him to. He doesn't, he doesn't measure things differently because it doesn't suit you and I. God has a specific design and he expects you and I to adhere to it, to not deviate from it, to love it and appreciate it, to walk in the harmony of it, to not fight him on it, basically. That's hard for us sometimes, isn't it? I think of Noah. When he was given the blueprint, for lack of a better word, for the ark. 
The materials were listed. The dimensions and the structure was clear. He was told what to use, how to build it, what God was going to put on it. Another wonderful example of this is found in the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle of Moses. If you want to read about some specific architecture in the Word of God, read about the tabernacle, the tent of meaning of Moses. The tabernacle in the wilderness was a place of meeting between God and man. It was where humanity, the Israelites, were allowed to interact and to worship God. It was a very special place. The Lord spoke to Moses and explained his reason for this structure and and his expectations concerning its fabrication. He, he came to Moses, and he had interacted with the children of Israel, and he knew them, and they were beginning to understand who God was again. And, and that didn't satisfy God. And he, he came to Moses, and in Exodus chapter 25, 8 and 9, he told him why he wanted this structure built. He said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. They need to build something so that I can dwell among them. And we should appreciate the profound meaning attached to the, to the statement that God made, that I may dwell among them. The comment to Moses and to you and I by extension is an indicator of God's desire from the very beginning of humanity's existence to have an intimate, deep fellowship with you and I. God loves you. And I, I, I don't know if that excites you nearly as much as it does me, but when you look at the vagaries of this world and the conditions that we face, whenever I, I lay my head down at night after I've prayed and I think about the fact that God, the creator of all things, cares about my existence, it's a humbling thing to think of. It's not something that I take for granted. I appreciate it and understand its implications. This, this explanation of God's motives that I, that I may dwell among them, that I want to dwell among them, it's, this explanation, God's motives, God explained these motives and desire, it was conveyed after he brought them out of Egypt. They had already had the hand of God that worked for them in a very powerful way whenever all of the plagues came through and they saw the power of God arrayed on their behalf. And, and it, was, it, was, it was after the, the, the parting of the Red Sea where they saw this great obstacle and they were told to stand still. And, and then they crossed on dry land. And, and then there, there was the, 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 the army of Egypt coming, out, coming after them. The Lord took the obstacle and he destroyed the enemy. That was, he told Moses, I want to dwell with them after doing those things, Brother Mark. He told Moses this after the manna from the heaven and the water from the rock. The Lord speaks this to Moses about his intention after Mount Sinai. There was a lot of interaction between God and Israel prior to that statement. So this brings up a very interesting principle, a very interesting fact, and this is it, that God is interested in more just a, than just affecting your life. The Lord wants relationship with you. Think about that. God is more interested than just affecting what happens in your life. 
God is not some cosmic vending machine. He's interested in more than just sending you on your way and calling you to a different place. Whenever you pray at night and you cry out to God with your issues, he's interested in what you have to say. God, yet our God who who wants this intimate connection with his creation, it's interesting that he does not just speak to Moses and simply give him this directive for a tabernacle, and, and he didn't just wait to see what happened. God spoke to Moses with careful exactness. Verse 9, it says, according to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the, and the pattern of all that the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Another translation says it a little differently. It says, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern that I show you. Don't deviate from it. Don't change. Don't do your own thing, Moses. You build it exactly like I want it built. We have difficulty in submitting to God at that level, at the level required in those last few words in verse 9, exactly according to the pattern I show you. The thought of God dwelling among us sounds wonderful. It sounds great. But those exacting requirements create some friction between us and the Lord. Why is that? Because we don't like to be told what to do. We like to do things our own way. We like the attendant blessings, but we want to get to that place of blessing in our own way. We're capable. I know how to build things, even though it may look a little lopsided and it may only be good for one or two uses, but I know how to build things, God, and I know how to get there. I don't, I don't want to build it exactly the way you want me to build it. We like to do things our way. We have a will, ladies and gentlemen, of our own. We have a penchant for exerting control in our lives, even if we know our limitations. God and God's instructions to Moses for the tabernacle, it spans over 40 chapters in the Word of God. By contrast, the whole of creation, the whole action of creation spans two. You tell me the tabernacle is not important. You tell me that God wanting to dwell with his people isn't important. The Lord gave Moses specific dimensions, specific materials, specific furniture, specific ways to arrange that furniture. He had to make them in a certain way, and he had to put them out in a certain order. The Israelites were given a plan and a path and were not allowed to deviate. This specificity reveals to us these, these thousands of years later that if we follow his plans, we can have legitimate expectations of peace that is inherent in relationship with God and eternal life through him. I began tonight talking about the unmerited favor of God toward you and I. And the, one of the greatest expressions of that favor is something that we're all working toward, that we're all in faith 
believing in, and that is eternal life. This is the favor of God that we are, if we're really honest, that we're most interested in. So it's, it's of real interest to me that the Lord who is so specific, and everything I told you up to now was, was kind of to develop your understanding that we serve a specific God. And it's interesting that God who is so specific is, uses some really vague language in the text that I read to you earlier. Some really vague language in regard to such an immensely important subject, the subject of life and relationship and salvation. Vagueness to which I refer is found in, in, in our text, and I'll read it to you again. It says, enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go in, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. The vagueness of the vocabulary and the incredible significance of the topic should cause us to ask some questions. I don't know about you, but eternity is a long time. And, and, and Lord, I need some specific language from you. I don't need some vague dimensions and vague answers. I need to know how to get to heaven. I need to know how to have relationship. I don't want it to be left up to my horrible ability to build things. I want him to tell me how to get there. Why did Jesus in, in this instance admonish those to whom he was speaking to enter into a specific place using a specific way in order to avoid a terrifying outcome and yet fail to articulate that singular life-giving way's actual dimensions. Narrow doesn't tell me much. The instructions imparted contain the language that underscores the eternal significance of the way that is ultimately chosen. You're going to choose a way, and you are going to have a destination. There is no ambiguity on that. There are two ways with two attendant destinations, two choices with two consequences. The wide gate and the broad way leads to ultimate irreversible destruction. You will never be in the, pro the presence of God again. It is a place of torment and separation. Whereas the narrow way and the straight gate leads to, we are told, everlasting life and communion and relationship with God. However, the words wide and broad and narrow and straight are maddeningly imprecise when you begin to think about the destination. I remember whenever I was a child, I was, I was very young, and, well, you normally are when you're a child. Sorry. Whenever I was a, a young child, they were talking about 
88 reasons, I think it was, the Lord was going to return in 1988. I think someone should have been gently horsewhipped for saying that. Because I was terrified as a child. I was so young and so scared. Because that, that language was a little too precise. And there was not enough attendant information to help me navigate that. So just how wide is wide, ladies and gentlemen, and just how narrow is narrow? The answer for this ambiguous language is actually, I believe, rooted in human nature. I believe that God used that terminology on purpose. Of course he did. I believe the Lord spoke to those people and by extension to you and I to instigate an action within us. Because, see, if you're really interested in your eternal destination, you're going to search out the answer to what wide means and what narrow means. You're not going to wait for me to tell you. It's going to be something that, that causes you to begin to look. You're going to want to find out what that terminology means. So Jesus spoke to, these, to those people, and by extension to you and I, to instigate an action within us. The Lord uses this language in regards to things of a eternal significance, I believe, to draw humanity into a place of revelation and discovery through the exploration of his word. He wants you to look and to find out what narrow means in regards to eternal life. You need to know where your feet are planted. You need to know where you're walking and where you're going towards. It's not something the preacher can tell you. It's not something that you can Google. You've got to get into the only place that tells you, and that is the Word of God. You are admonished. I know Grace Church, our pastor, admonishes us frequently to get into the Word and to understand it. Let me give you one more reason. Where are you going to be in 10,000 years? I don't care who wins the election. I care where I'm going to be when the sun burns out. How important is it to you that God wants to dwell with you? How important is that to you, that you have a loving God that wants to choose you and wants to dwell with you? Are we interested enough in eternity to actively search the Scriptures to find the width of that way? the dimensions of that eternal corridor that leads to salvation and eternal life and all the attendant benefits of relationship with God. It is my belief, one that has been established through study of the, of the Holy Word and through observation and experience that the exact dimensions of the way to life is mercifully revealed in the Scriptures. It is there. You can find it. It's plain as day if you care to look. But we do have to talk about the broad way. The primary text for this message is drawn from a small section at the end of what we come to know and come to call as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It has been preached 
and used correctly, I believe, throughout the years as a warning. But I also think it speaks of a profound hope. We must acknowledge that this hope is, however, preceded by the warning, and we need to look at it. It is a warning which is based in the ages-old condition of man's relentless, foolish will. Broadway and the wide gate. It's really not built by God. You can't blame the Lord for this. It is constructed by human will. The will to have what we want in the way that we want it. It's not a new idea. There's songs written about it, and there's poems. There's one poem that I happen to like. I don't know what that says about me. But I'm going to read it to you. Get a little poetry tonight. A little culture here at Grace. The poem is called Invictus. I've always liked it ever since I first heard it. It's written by William Ernest Henley. This is the poem. It says, Out of the night that covers me black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbound. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. I think this poem appeals to men for some reason, probably because we're not that smart. It does appeal to us. And many would argue that the poem that I just read to you speaks to the empowerment of the individual, that it glorifies the resilience of man and declares his unique status as a free-willed being. But Henley's composition is actually the celebration of those attributes that, if not moderated, can become destructive to the very relationship with God that we want. And yet it appeals to something within us. It satisfies some aspect of our coronal character. It feeds that part of our nature from which defiance and rebelliousness is born. It appeals to us because we want to do things our way, regardless of the consequence. They point, the poem points to the attitudes that can become the brick and the mortar and the pavement of that broad way that leads to destruction. We live in a society that exalts in the marginalization of the concept of a supreme creator and Lord. It absolutely rejects the, any accountability to that righteous, sovereign God. Humanity views the joy and peace attributed to relationship with God as attainable, without the need to adhere to the specifics of God's expectations. The view of this world is that living your best life now can be achieved without attending to the requirements of that narrow way. Humanity simply wants to do things its way. It wants to get there on its own. It wants to have the benefits of relationship with God without 
doing the specific things and adhering to the specific way that God wants us to. The scripture says this in Proverbs 14 and 12 where it says there, there is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. We see this concept exampled in the behavior of men and women in our own society. We have the highest incarceration rate in the industrialized world, ladies and gentlemen, because, why? Because people reject the structure of society and want to do things their way. We look at the Bible, and we see from the beginning of human history, we've struggled to assert our own will over the order and the structure of God. The idolatry throughout the Old Testament is an example of man trying to construct his own way towards something only God Almighty can really only provide. The children of Israel worship Baal and Estereth and Ashereth and Moloch the entire time turning their back on the true way. These false deities represented at that time the broad way when Israel, the Israelites were whole and then a divided nation. They were the ideas of man rooted in a defiant nature that was influenced by evil. Today's Broadway is composed of different things. Today's Broadway is composed of attenuated biblical truth, weak sauce religion. It is composed of ethical, moral compromised ethical, moral, and godly standards for the sake of Caesar's coin. We'll preach whatever you want to preach, whatever you want to hear, as long as you put money in the offering plate. The lust for personal gain has replaced the desire for scriptural, doctrinal rigor. Christians race to be inclusive rather than to be holy. The broad way is now paved with a thin veneer of religiosity to hide the corrupt carnal motivations that lie beneath. That's the broad way that we have now. But the purpose of the broad way hasn't changed. The purpose is still uninhibited, comfortable travel in a way which satisfies the flesh but leaves the soul exposed to the penalty of sin. That is the way. It's not an innocuous way. It's not harmless not to serve God correctly. It's not harmless to deviate from the way that God has laid out for us. There is another way, though. It is specific. It is perfect. And this way is constructed by the hands of God. The scripture speaks in our text of the narrow way. This text drawn from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount gives us a warning, but it also points to a beautiful, hopeful truth. Let's read it again. Enter ye in at the straight gate, verse 13. This is an instruction that precedes the warning. It illustrates the Lord's interest in the salvation of humanity. It goes on to say, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that, that go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that findeth. 
We can, as I said before, relate to this scripture because we can visualize it in our minds. Why is that? No, because God uses precise vocabulary in his word to draw us toward great truths and revelations. When Jesus speaks these few sentences to those around him, our Lord knew the imagery that would be sparked in their minds. He knew what they would be thinking. We are beings of definable dimensions. We understand boundaries, and we understand spaces with limits. We appreciate context derived from measurement. So when we get right down to it, what are the dimensions of this narrow way to which Jesus is referring? What is the dimensions? I believe when you look at the life and the teachings of Christ, you begin to see the parameters of that narrow way. The width of the way to eternal life in Christ is found in his own words. In John chapter 14, 14 verses 1 through 6, it says this, Let not your heart be troubled. Don't fear. You don't need to be afraid. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare that place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither ye go, whither ye go, and the way ye know. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we get there? We don't know either one. In verse 6, Jesus says this unto him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The width of the way is defined by Jesus. You want to know what the width of the way? Turn your eyes toward God. The width of the way is measured in the drops of blood that fell from the body of Jesus as he hung suspended from the cruel cross that was reserved for the vilest of, of criminals. The dimensions of the way, it's, it's as wide as our Savior's arms that were stretched out and pinned to that device of torture and humiliation. Those are nails piercing his hands and his feet and conforming his battered body to a purpose that echoed from the first fall of man. The width of the way is demarcated by the body of Jesus, which was flayed, which was scourged, which was whipped and spit upon and beaten and mocked. The Lord's head was not crowned with gold and silver, but rather with thorns woven into a grotesque caricature of honor, then beaten into his scalp. You can read this in Mark chapter 15, and it says, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And, and the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they, and they called together the whole band. And and they clothed him with purple, and they plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. If this doesn't affect you, when you think about your Savior, who did nothing but love you, you need to reevaluate how you read Scripture and what God means to you. I'm not talking about some false deity. I'm talking about the God who clothed himself in flesh and suffered the indignities of the cross so that you and I could have everlasting life. Began to salute him and hail king of the Jews. And they smote him in the head with a reed and they spit on him. 
bowing their knees and worshiping him and mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put on his own clothes. And after the humiliation and after the pain, it wasn't over for Jesus. They led that battered body out to a cross and hung him there until he died. Want to know the prophecy of that? You can read Isaiah chapter 53 to see this bloody act prophesied about. That precious body that was the manifestation of our most high God. It was It was a body that was birthed into this world by an obscure, ordinary young woman. It was a body with humble beginnings and an ignoble end, but walked, it walked in a lofty, eternal purpose. That body was propelled onto onto the crucifixion cross by a willfully ignorant and corrupted men, but also divine decree and the will of the one crucified. That body remained suspended from the earth by love. He endured the pain, resisted the ministry of the heavenly host in order to redeem humanity. The width of the way, ladies and gentlemen, is not measured in inches and feet and yards. The dimensions of the way to everlasting life and relationship with the Most High God is not calculated using the science of meter, but rather in the word that became flesh. First John chapter 14, it says, And the word which was made flesh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's no coincidence that verse 14 of the Gospel of John and the Exodus, and the verse in Exodus chapter 25 and 8 sounds so similar. In Exodus it says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In verse 14 of John it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God was interested in relationship with those ancient people huddled in the desert. And he still wants relationship with you. When the Lord spoke of the narrow way, the dimensions were contained within himself. The difficulty of following Jesus is merely a reflection of the difficulty of Calvary. The narrowness of the way is not meant to exclude but to retain. What is that narrow way? It's Jesus. We now have confidence of access to God through the way that he provided this precious way etched in his flesh. Hebrews 10 and 19 and 20 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Both concepts that I spoke about tonight are explored in Jesus' statements in John chapter 10. He said in verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth upon some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He says in verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and shall go out and find pasture. The way is defined by Jesus. But we need to remember who he is and why he came. God came in the flesh as Jesus Christ in order to provide salvation for his fallen creation. The incarnation for the, was for the purpose 
of the atonement. The gospel, literally the good news, is that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for your salvation. There is no salvation, no eternal life outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way. John the Baptist said this about the Lord. Next day, John seeth, and John 1 and 29 says, Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus came to take the penalty for humanity's sin, for our sin in our place. God made the decision to bind himself by the principle of death for sin. He, we understand through the scripture that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or release from this penalty and no restoration to fellowship with our sovereign God. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of the blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. His death became the permanent atonement for our iniquity. God does not excuse our sin, but has inflicted the penalty for those sin on the innocent humanity of Christ. Rather than you and I die and be permanently, eternally separated from him, the Lord paid for our sin on the cross in order that we could be forever forgiven and have eternal life with him. This is why Jesus, who was God manifested in the flesh, came as our Savior to be that pavement, to become that narrow way. Any sin you have ever committed or will do, Jesus was aware of while hanging on that cross. Jesus was the ransom for our sins. This is an incredible act of favor directed toward humanity within the atmosphere of grace that, the, that God provided. This beautiful gospel, this good news is described by Paul in Romans 1 and 16 is powerful. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The narrow way and the straight gate spoken of by Jesus is first a reference to himself. The narrow way is traveled by those who choose the path. It is sought after by those who understand the sad limitations that exist within man. We cannot construct a device or form a philosophy that extends its power beyond the grave. The broad way is populated by those who reject the specific measurements of Christ and who refuse to be obedient to the gospel and his way. We are blessed that this precious truth, this revelation of the way, is given to us to obey. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which the Apostle Paul is, speaks to us, is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation. You respond, ladies and gentlemen, to that gospel or apply it to your lives by repentance, water baptism in the name of Jesus and the receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. We know that scripture, but do you know what what it's founded upon. Christ alone 
his atoning work is the foundation of salvation in every, every age among every people. Salvation always originates in God's grace and appropriated by obedient faith to that narrow way which we know is expressed in Jesus. The Lord provided for us the way of salvation unto life as well as the template for our journey. His singleness of purpose and commitment to his cause should be emulated by those who love him. Our minds and lives should be unencumbered by the distractions of this world. The motivations and values that comprise the pathway to destruction are the antithesis of the way provided to us by Jesus. I'm going to close with this tonight. I encourage you to take a look at where your feet are. Take a look at where they're planted. See where you're going. And remember that narrow way. There is a tremendous amount of fear and uncertainty in this world. That doesn't have to touch your life. 1 John 5, 11 through 13 says this. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. I don't know if you're going to be sick tomorrow. I don't know your financial situation. But I do know that you can have eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I know I was a little long tonight, but I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in the power of God unto salvation. And I believe that our feet need to be founded on the truth that does not waver and does not change. Can you stand tonight? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We magnify you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done so long ago, dear God. And I pray, dear Lord, that that truth is inscribed, that it is etched on our hearts, dear Lord, that we leave this place emboldened, Lord Jesus, to tell someone about you to walk, Lord God, in the confidence of your presence, walk in the confidence of your indwelling spirit, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord God, to be obedient, Lord, to the faith that we proclaim to have. In the precious and holy name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Everyone say amen. God bless you all.
Shame is a prison as cruel as a grave. Shame is a robber, and he's come to take my name. Oh, love is my redeemer, lifting me up from the ground. Love is the power where my freedom song is found. There ain't no
Say passion 
Yeah.
echoes on each other.